Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello everyone and welcome to the Speak Up podcast. Uh, my name is Gailey Fritch. I'm a member of the Speech Pathology Australian Victorian Branch Professional Education Committee. I'm also an interprofessional educator and a practicing certified speech pathologist, uh, working primarily in the field of progressive neurological conditions. And it is my great pleasure uh, to be having a conversation today with Chris Payton. So welcome, Chris. Thank you. Chris, I'm going to tell people a little bit about you because uh, I just think this is so interesting um, in terms of your career and the work that you're doing now. So Chris is an advanced extended scope uh, practitioner speech pathologist in ENT and head and neck at the Gold Coast University Hospital Queensland and is also a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney Faculty of Medicine and Health. Chris also has an honorary title of senior lecturer at Griffith University and is the chair of the Queensland Health Speech Pathology Endoscopic Evaluation of Voice Working Group and has 20 years experience as a practicing speech pathologist. So we are gonna learn so much from you today, Chris. I'm really excited for this conversation. I hope so. I'll be good. So Chris, I would love to zoom straight in to the work that you're doing in your PhD. and I understand that you have recently uh, presented your results from a scoping review, uh, looking at the classification of voice disorders. And I must say, I, I have dabbled around the edges of voice. I'm so looking forward to, uh, to like I said, learning from you. But, but certainly my understanding is that, that historically in our profession, voice classification has been complex and perhaps even problematic. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what you've discovered? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the scoping review was um, a marathon, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was, uh, I'll start by just giving an introduction around um, why we decided to do this in the first place, actually, because um, that probably has um, a little bit of context. But um, we, my PhD is looking at um, the uh, primary contact uh, speech pathology um, assessment for patients with voice disorders. Uh, And that's a a similar model to um, a model that's been discussed in in a previous podcast um, with Speak Up by our colleagues in in Logan, Jen Davis. Um, And the idea around my PhD is to is to look at this model and um, assess how um, how efficient it is in terms of um, measuring uh, voice assessment with uh, uh, with patients that are coming through that uh, that model, and um, we know that it has great. Uh, um, impacts to the services in terms of reducing waiting times as, as 
has been discussed and 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 um, and, and several places have published that, but. We don't really know. It, it, it's not a model that's readily available in lots of areas, and um, it's it's only in specialist centres where um, uh, where ENT and speech pathology are, are, are supportive of such models, um, and it, it, it perhaps needs to to have some wider scope. So, sorry to go off track to your question, but I, I oh just... no, good to, good to have the context, yeah. 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 So uh, part of my PhD is is looking at um, how a speech pathologist and ENT look at and 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 um, classify and diagnose voice disorders, um, because that's a real key um, part of our our clinic. Um, because we know historically that uh, from many of the uh, the guidance that we have is that laryngoscopy um, and ENT diagnosis is essential um, for uh, diagnosis of people with voice disorders. Um, and um, But it's limited in terms of um, classification of those voice disorders where there isn't something visible um, or visible organic or neurogenic um, etiologies to the voice disorder. We know that too. Um, and so the, the scoping review developed out of some discussions that I had as part of my review. Initially, we were going to look at a systematic review that um, that looked at um, the uh, efficacy of, of um, uh, voice uh, assessments, um, because we know that voice assessment is a multi um, uh, multi-dimensional assessment, uh, including laryngoscopy, including speech pathology assessments that we do as part of our assessments. Um, and so we wanted to know how, how, how people are classifying voice disorders in order to then measure, well, how effectively are we doing that in, in these clinics? Um, and so, but actually, there was a systematic review that had been completed back in 2013, looking at different um, test measures of voice and how effective they were in a diagnostic um, uh, context. And it found that the evidence was very low. Um, and one of the key findings of that um, systematic review, it was um, done by um, Nelson Roy and the, um, the uh, amazing SIG3 Asher group in, in America, the Voice Disorders Specialist Group. And one of the key findings that they found was um, that actually all of the different studies didn't agree on what they were calling voice disorders. So in order to assess the, um, the, uh, the reliability of the test measures, they were all calling things different things. And we were having discussions in our um, research meeting and with the clinicians, with the ENTs and the speech pathologists that I work with, and we were all doing the same thing. Um, so some of us would call um, a, a specific voice disorder a functional voice disorder. Others would call it non-organic, non um, uh, muscle tension dysphonia. And nobody really had a, an absolute um, uh, hold on, on, on why they were calling those different things. So we decided to embark on looking at the scoping review. We specifically wanted to look at frameworks um, that were in existence because we wanted to understand um, how classification um, 
was made within a framework of lots of different voice disorders because that was necessary in order to understand how they compared with each other. So why would authors group a specific voice disorder into one part of a framework compared to another part of the framework? So so we looked specific. So so our question for the for the scoping review uh, was to um, to identify the frameworks that were in existence and then to understand to to um, describe the terminology that um, authors used within those frameworks and then the definitions for how voice disorders were or, or how they were classified. Um, we specifically wanted to look at classification systems rather than diagnostic systems. Um, and that's because we wanted to encompass uh, non-organic as well as organic voice disorders. Um, and we know from the literature that actually um, those non-organic voice disorders are more likely to be classified. They don't have um, specific diagnostic features that tell them that tell one from from another um, as um, organic voice disorders might. And so classification is important. And that's what we're essentially doing as speech pathologists in our primary contact clinic is we're classifying those voice disorders, determining whether they need to see a speech pathologist or an ENT. Um, and um, what is the next step for that assessment or treatment pathway? Um, so it was a fascinating, we, we ended up um, screening uh, 2,600 articles, I think. It was pretty massive. <laughs> yep. It, yep. it was amazing to have the support of my supervisors, mm -hmm. um, my PhD supervisors, um, Associate Professor um, Kate Medill and uh, Dr. Kelly Weir, and also my um, wonderful colleague, Greg um, Ciappello, um, who I work with, who was a, a perfect uh, right-hand man for that for that uh, um, scoping review. Um, and we found some really interesting things. So um, essentially, we narrowed it down to um, 20 uh, frameworks that we selected for this review. And the reason the, the reason we chose those 20 um, is because they uh, the, they met the inclusion criteria for our view, review, which was a, um, a framework um, for classification uh, of voice disorders, a, um, had enough detail in there to um, describe definitions of voice disorders or why those voice disorders had been classified in that way. Um, and we looked at publications from 1940 upwards. Um, we chose 1940 because that was around the time of where functional voice disorders were, were first discussed in the, in the literature, and we wanted to encompass as much as possible. Um, and so uh, now the, the results of our scoping review is, uh, are yet to be published. Um, they're submitted. So um, the, uh, some of this, uh, some of the narrative around it might change, but um, we found that across those 20 frameworks, um, they, they described um, specific structures of how voice disorders are, 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 are placed into that framework. Some of them described single um, frameworks, so just one single uh, voice disorder classification, such as um, ventricular dysphonia or non-organic dysphonia or psychogenic dysphonia. And then we also had six um, authors that described a multi, what we called a multi-structure um, framework. 
which um, encompassed voice disorders across all of the different um, domains. And so we, we described them in those ways. Um, interestingly, the majority of the structures were quite similar in the way in which they um, organized voice disorders under that structure. So that's quite interesting um, and reassuring because that's how we as clinicians um, organize uh, voice disorders um, that way. The terminology was a huge um, uh, uh, thing to, to really get through. We, we, we came across over a hundred, uh, I think it was over 150 different um, terms for um, similar conditions um, across those frameworks um, and um, 35 different groups. Um, and so, uh, but uh, the, it, it, it would, and, and you know, there were some obvious ones that were really um, confusing, such as functional versus muscle tension dysphonia. Um, yes. So, some um, authors describe functional dysphonia as encompassing both an umbrella term for muscle tension dysphonia and psychogenic dysphonia. Um, others just uh, used it to describe psychogenic dysphonia, and there were some authors that used it to describe conditions that, that appeared to match with muscle tension dysphonia, so a little bit confusing. Um, the uh, Perhaps the, the biggest take-home message message that we had from um, that scoping review was really with the um, really with the the uh, defining characteristics or how we um, define voice disorders that um, uh, may be uh, split into um, uh, the psychogenic and the muscle tension domains um, of voice disorders, so those non-organic voice disorders. Um, and actually, interestingly, laryngoscopy was uh, was didn't appear to to be helpful in in terms of classifying those particular voice disorders because um, a lot of the authors did use those. Um, those features, but they it, it, it wasn't clear about what you see on laryngoscopy, uh, how it pertains to muscle tension dysphonia versus a, um, a functional dysphonia, psychogenic dysphonia. Um, however, perhaps surprisingly, um, there were features that did appear to um, help to uh, separate out those conditions. And those came from case history information, things like onset, progression, um, uh, uh, things, uh, the um, secondary symptoms, um, such as muscle fatigue, um, and um, uh, a big one, which has been talked about a lot by um, the amazing Janet Baker, mm. um, is the patient's volitional control over how they can change that voice. And that's really interesting. Um, uh, many of the articles came across that um, as something that, that you could help determine whether it was a um, psychogenic etiology or, or of a muscle tension etiology. Mm. Um, and we were able to, to come up with, we, we weren't expecting this, but we were able to come up with a uh, recommended framework, which um, will hopefully be shared as part of that article um, based on all of those authors' amazing work. Oh, that's amazing. I must say, yeah. as, you, as you start talking about, you know, 20 frameworks and 150, um, you know, uh, examples of terminology, um, I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I, and I'm not quite sure what I expected, but I thought 
20. <laughs> There's so yeah. many. And yet how interesting that you're still able to kind of draw those threads. And I guess ultimately thinking about, okay, if we're working through this, this idea of, of diagnosis and classification, but what are the things that are powerful? in terms of, of working out it's this or not, well, yeah. this or this. And um, yeah. it sounds like that has actually really brought you to that space of, of thinking what, yeah. what, what's powerful in terms of that assessment protocol. Yeah, um, it has. Yeah. And, and also it's, um, you know, like many, um, many reviews, um, there's an awful lot of work to be done um, to, uh, to determine a, 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 you know, mm. a, a, a unified um, uh, classification framework. So, you know, mm. our, our, one of our recommendations is, is to, to do some work um, to develop something that internationally is agreed um, mm. for using the same terminology so that we can be using that both within our clinic, clinics, um, but also as, you know, part of research to, to, to um, when we're looking at test measures and, and how effective they are. Mm, mm. And it is so important, isn't it, that we we that the terminology we know what we're talking about, that it's it's got yeah. that clarity, yeah. And so my understanding is that that sort of as you're doing this, you're obviously moving towards the development of this core assessment protocol to be used, particularly in that context of that um, uh, primary contact model within with ENT. Um, one aspect of this that, that uh, you shared with us as we were preparing um, for today that's really piqued my interest is the utilisation of uh, telehealth oh. uh, in, in voice assessment. And I must confess that uh, working um, um, last year as we very quickly, like many clinicians, transitioned to telehealth and uh, sitting down for the first time uh, with uh, at the screen with my um, beautiful patients with with Parkinson's disease, and thinking about oh, how do I how do I get any kind of measures around your your voice uh, in this modality? And and thinking oh, actually I, I hadn't thought that through, and and sort of hitting some barriers and roadblocks. Um, but but can you share sort of where you're up to in terms of some of those practical insights around using telehealth in voice assessment? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It mm. sparked a lot of conversation um, mm. when we were all suddenly thrushed, uh, um, had to, to go into the, um, the telehealth space. I, I remember that. And yeah, we, um, and, and to, to make that uh, slightly uh, more complex is that mm. sometimes when you're working in um, specific hospitals, you're only able to use certain platforms. And mm. there was a lot of information around um, which platforms were better for getting a better um, voice signal yeah. um, to get all of those measures. Um, and um, we did quite a bit of um, experimenting around that, but I was uh, very, very fortunate also to, um, to have some guidance from uh, my PhD supervisor, um, Kate Medill, who, who was um, also in the same situation with, uh, with her voice um, patients. And we had a discussion about that through our, through our meetings. Um, and um, we, so we're using the telehealth um, assessment as part of our protocol as an initial um, assessment to, uh, first of all, in a response to not being able to see patients face to face. Mm. And of course, initially, um, 
we were we were also uh, unable to do any um, nasal endoscopy or, or or many of the voice mm-hmm. assessment um, uh, that we instrumentation that we would normally do and rely on. Um, so that's interesting. Um, so we uh, very quickly we we learned that the best way of getting a best signal from uh, or a best voice sample from patients um, is to actually get them to record their own sample and send them through to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a that was uh, an interesting um, because every time we tried to do those measures over Zoom, you'll appreciate. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. we. We had people doing it over Zoom, and while we're listening to them on the phone to to get the sustained R, um, because the signal comes a little bit better over the mobile phones. Um, and um, yeah, we we developed um, a package where patients would be able to um, make a recording themselves at home, um, which we're doing as part of that research study, um, and then send them to us. We use a um, a secure um, sharing platform, which is called KiteWorks, um, uh, KiteWorks Secure File Transfer. It's an approved platform that Queensland Health is using a, a lot now for um, a lot of our um, correspondence also with GPs and email mm. correspondence with patients. Um, and um, we uh, so we'll have the initial telehealth consult, which is a case history with those mm-hmm. patients. Get all of the in, uh, information that we think we need to to get from that case history, and then at the end, um, talk them through how to make a home recording of their voice, which they then send through to us um, uh, on the same day or the day de- or the next day, um, and we get them to uh, and we can then analyze that and we've had some great success with analyzing that we try to for the for the purpose of our research study we are um, trying to standardize how they uh, how they make those recordings so where possible we're um, we're asking people to use a laptop or a computer um, because that gives a better it doesn't um, sample the signal too much um, to allow us to do some acoustic measures, um, whereas mobile phones uh, are sort of set up to make our voices sound nice, aren't they? So mm. that doesn't help us when we're wanting to measure quality. Yes. yes. Um, mm. And um, yeah, and so that's part of our study. And we're, mm. we're able to get a good sample for perceptual assessment and, um, and some of our acoustic measures as well. Mm. And that on sounds- the whole, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, it sounds like a really good start. Like you'd be well along your way with starting to hypothesize what's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. And um, and so that study, yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. And we'll we'll you know hopefully it will show us a little bit more um, about how we might be able to use this virtual medium um, to 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 do those initial assessments without seeing people face to face when we can't. Mm. Um, fortunately in Queensland we are in the in the space and we have been for a while where we could see patients face to face Um, so that's been another challenge actually with the telehealth Mm. because then people don't want to do um, telehealth they'd rather come into hospital Um, and we've had fluctuating um, 
restrictions within our hospital. We're very close to the New South Wales border. Um, and so there are a number of our patients do come from New South Wales um, as part of our catch, um, our area of um, where we see patients. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, how people are different people are responding to telehealth and one of the other um we've also had some experiences where patients um kind of take it to the other extreme i don't know whether you've had the same mm. but um they'll they, you know, they, they they see the flexibility of a telehealth assessment and um and take full advantage of mm. that i've i've had somebody dial in for the appointment while they've been hiking on Tambury Mountain <laughs> yes, or on a building site where it's clearly been un- unsafe. It's <laughs> yes, right, yes. <laughs> no, we've definitely uh, had people enjoy the um, being able to um, just get out of yeah. bed and get straight into the appointment. And then when it's yeah. finished, you're already home uh, yeah. and not having to worry about parking and all those things. Yeah. So, yes, and loving that. And, of course, an awful lot and sitting, I'm in Victoria, but, you know, given that that many of our voice assessments are, in fact, aerosol generating procedures, yeah. um, that has been very limiting. Yeah. Um, there's been Absolutely. we've just not been able to do or certainly not able to do um, without um I guess really having to think through how important it is to get that yeah. at that time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and what can we get instead mm-hmm. um, that will that, that we can use when we can't do some of those yeah. procedures? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I love the idea of um, I think yeah those guidelines for people as they make their own recordings because one of the things I was really finding is whilst I could standardise my end you know, make sure that I'd set everything up the same way. Um, I I really felt like I, I wasn't setting that up well at the other end as to, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it's very hard then to know whether I've got valid data or data I can compare to anything else, yeah. Yeah, mm. that's that's right. And that mm. will be interesting to see um, how we've done with that standardisation mm. with, with our mm. patients as, as we come to analyse our study. But... Um, Certainly, um, yeah, everybody has different equipment, don't they? And yeah. um, it's it's very hard to standardise that. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, the other, another thing I was really interested in as you were talking about your PhD and, and I was reading a little bit about the work you're doing, um, and you've alluded to this already, but I think it is the fact that um, these type of clinics um, and this, this um, I guess this scope within our profession is, is something that is growing and, and looking at utilising um, a speech pathology primary contact model. Uh, and, and I think with the growing evidence, um, I think we'll see more and more clinics utilising this model. And, and so you're obviously looking at developing something that is that is translatable, that, that is not something that just works at Gold Coast University Hospital, but, but, but can be um, um, picked up and looked at as, as other clinics are being set up. Um, and I, I'm sort of just wondering sort of what you've had to think about as you're thinking about the idea of translatable uh, in this process. Yeah, I think it's... Um, it, it's it, so it's we're probably a long way off mm. um, making these services translatable. I think mm. um, the most important thing is that we can demonstrate um, that the the assessments that we do as speech pathologists um, have um, are, are valid. They they have mm. validity in terms of um, 
managing patients that would ordinarily be coming through and seeing an ENT or a multidisciplinary clinic, voice clinic, um, as a first contact. Um, we know that the gold standard for um, assessment as per the guidance um, from, uh, you know, globally um, is for multi multidisciplinary assessment of voice. And the ideal way of doing that is through a multidisciplinary clinic where patients come in and they see a speech pathologist and um, an ENT and um, other voice professionals um, appropriate to that. Um, but sadly, that isn't always available. Um, our ENT's times are um, often being pulled into lots of high priority areas such as cancer work. Mm. Um, and so that's how this model really first developed here in Queensland. And I think it, it, is, it is gaining momentum because of that reason, because it appears to be a cost-effective model. So I think the first things we need to understand is um, how reliable and how valid are our assessment approaches. And that's certainly something that we are aiming to measure as part of my PhD. So that the, um, the study that is where we've got going on at the moment, which is a telehealth study. So it's looking at the assessment um, information that we can pull from a telehealth assessment and a voice analysis assessment to predict how, urgency, how urgently patients need to see an ENT for assessment. Um, and by analyzing that data using a regression, a logistic regression model, we'll then be able to understand what parts of a voice assessment by speech pathologists are critical in that diagnostic or that classification of the voice disorder um, into group. Do they need to see an ENT? Do they need to see a speech pathologist? Um, and so that's the first level that we're um, that we're aiming to to look at. The next level is the is the cost effectiveness of of the model, and that's a really difficult one to to measure because there are so many different um, aspects to that, as we know from any cost um, effectiveness studies. Um, so we need to know, um, first of all, uh, how much of an impact is the, the reduced waiting time happening on the patients, um, how much um, clinical time is being put into these models, um, because when you look at it, faced, uh, when you look at it um, in the clinic, it's looking like it's, it's a speech pathologist against an ENT and, and whose time is more costly. But actually there's a lot in the background mm. that's setting up these services. Um, and, um, and also, you know, how, what is the cost of, of um, them being seen much earlier and getting treatment much earlier? So that's the next level that we're hoping to collect enough data to be able to give us um, some, uh, some measure of that, um, even if that's going to be an ongoing study beyond my mm. PhD. Mm. Um, and I think once we have that information and we know that it's a valid model and that it has... Um, a level of cost savings um, for health services, then, um, then it's, uh, we need to understand um, how, we, how we can implement those models, what training is required. Um, at the moment, they're extended scope models and, and, mm -hmm. and the extended scope is around, um, within uh, Australia is around um, 
speech pathologist doing a nasendoscopy procedure, um, even though ENTs are interpreting that um, procedure and, 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 and giving the diagnosis mm. jointly with the speech pathologist, um, as they would do in a, a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, and it's also around um, the fact that we're seeing patients who are referred to ENT. Um, However, it may not always need to be uh, an extended scope model, I guess, because if speech pathologists can do their initial assessment using the assessments that they that are part of their scope and then recommend um, uh, or, or get them into CENT faster, which we've seen in our model, or recommend a routine laryngoscopy, um, it's still a first contact model or a primary contact model, but um, potentially could have different different levels. And I guess that's the that's the next stage. It's it's interesting because um, there's a there's some a great body of work that's going on in the UK at the moment, um, which is looking at um, similar models for patients who are waiting on um, an urgent wait list um, where they're referred into ENTs under a two week wait. Uh, which is a cancer referral pathway, sure. um, and um, and to see and and they're looking at uh, similar levels. Can they identify those patients who truly need to see ENT versus those mm. patients that have a dysphonia with no organic um, etiology yeah. that that can be seen quicker, but come off of that ENT waiting list? Mm. Mm. Um, and also, I think into into appropriate treatment. Um, yeah. with, with speech pathologists and, and yes. the, yeah. the right the right place for that treatment. Yeah, yeah. and much faster. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. And that's a, that's a different thing because it's interesting to know, um, you know, whether more patients are being referred into speech pathology mm. through our pathway than mm. initially. I Yeah, we, we haven't measured that, but it's an interesting thought. That's a good question, yeah. I'm just going to go on a quick tangent with a, a question for a moment because I'm aware there may be some listeners today who um, uh, are maybe not working particularly in the field of voice, but maybe considering um, embarking on their doctorate studies. And I remember you, you said that along the way in this journey, you, you've, you've learned some things and had some advice and or not so much advice, some insights about that process. But, but as someone who is, you know, right in the middle of it, uh, do, do you have any any thoughts you'd like to share with, with uh, other other people, other listeners who may be in that pathway or thinking about it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think um, it's an amazing journey and um, I wish I'd done it sooner in some respects because um, I had considered it for a very long time and, um, and always put it off thinking... Um, I don't have enough time or um, I don't have enough support. And I think certainly, um, the, you know, there are, um, I've, been, I've had an interest in, in research from a very early career. I've, I've had the opportunities to, um, to dabble with research and, and to work with um, research collaborators on papers. And I think those, those are enormous opportunities, but, I think if you're interested in research and you want to um, develop something or, or take that research further, then I would encourage early conversations um, with uh, collaborators that you think might be helpful because that's really essential. I, the, the way in which I came into my PhD pathway um, 
was through my model of care that we have here at the Gold Coast, wanting to take that further from a research perspective and wanting to understand it in more detail. And then I was fortunate enough to have the collaboration with um, uh, with uh, Kate Medill and the Dr. Liang Voice Program at, at the University of Sydney. Um, and sharing her vision of um, of wanting to to get better quality and better access for um, patients with voice disorders, and that's how. And, and then there was um, a toing and froing over about a year of, of sort of discussing that, uh, and then finally leaping into doing my PhD. So I think early conversations developing it over time is is a really good thing, um, and it helps prepare you. Certainly, I think. Um, I really enjoy being a clinical researcher. I really enjoy having that um, uh, process of of seeing patients and researching at the same time. Um, It's challenging in terms of um, organizing your time, but I think if you do that, um, if you do that uh, well and you and you're good at planning your time then then it's it's enormously rewarding and it helps to keep you motivated in the research um, I haven't over the three years so far I've been doing my PhD I haven't come across a situation where I've become um, disinterested and and I think mm. um, that happens a fair amount um, I understand so I think that's really important consider being a clinical researcher um, and and doing it Mm. part-time. Getting support with grant applications to support your time and to um, it's sometimes when you're early in the in the PhD process writing grant applications feels a little bit um, like you're doing it because you want more money um, to fund your time and yet it's taking you away from your studies and (laughs) (laughs) and then you know one in ten grant uh, you're successful and the rest you're not Um, and that can feel quite defeating a little bit but actually I was I found that writing grant applications in hindsight actually helped me develop my research um, questions and my studies and um, and uh, the um, the words of my supervisor it's a great way of getting free feedback yes. um, even though you have to develop a little bit of a, a hard shell mm. <laughs> sometimes so those things uh, so I think just um, uh, embracing some of those things is is very helpful I think um, having good conversations with your with the people who you also share share your life with outside of work as well um, because it does take up um, a fair amount of your time and it is a big commitment um, to everybody um, so um, you know having having those open conversations and, and planning that around your life is is really important um, oh, all good advice yeah. thank you <laughs> Chris Go I I'm probably um, coming to the end of my my planned questions but I just yeah. love to give you an opportunity um, before we finish up um, if there was anything else that, that you were hoping to share or would like to share about about the work that you're doing? Um, I can't think of anything. I, um, I mean, I think uh, I'm very passionate about the primary contact model and I think it's, it's a great, um, 
it, it would be great if we can demonstrate that it um, that it has uh, enormous um, benefits for patients as well as for mm. service waiting waiting times and things. Mm. Um, and um, I think it's great that it's it's getting gaining momentum. Um, mm. I um, I guess uh, I'm very early in my in my studies with this model, so perhaps a little bit naive in terms of what we're what we're looking at. So it'll be interesting to see how that's looking in mm. in three years' time. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm just very honoured to be doing this podcast. I bet. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> I hope people do find it interesting. <laughs> it is, and I think I mean I think there's some a number of things that are interesting. I mean, certainly that idea of advanced scope in a, in our work. Um, is I think you know genuinely exciting, and I think there's some transferable stuff there to look at. Well, what what can we contribute, you know, not just in in this kind of clinic, but maybe in in other other contexts as well, yeah. with our, our our you know our skills and our knowledge, um, and and certainly I mean all the early evidence is very promising, and I remember some of the early stuff that um that was um, brought out with when, when Marnie was setting up the the work at um at Logan Hospital and you know, genuinely exciting um, as to some of the impact on, you know, just some of those very quick things to measure, but things like wait times. But yeah. you can say that's a simple thing to measure, but in a person's life, that is significant to to have a reduced wait time. And yeah. Absolutely. When you talk about when you're thinking about patients with voice disorders, yeah. when you know that yeah. the, the prevalence in Australia is something like six point eight percent. And yeah. um, from yeah. the studies in the in the US, a third of those with voice disorders have uh, are, are in occupations where they're needing to use their voice for their occupation. Mm. It's it's a massive impact. Yes. And um, and the work that that Marnie um, Seabrook did was groundbreaking in terms of mm. those numbers that that really um, excited us as well and they've recently published um, uh, which is worth worth a plug they've recently published um, a five-year um, retrospective review of all of the patients that they've seen in their model at the Logan wow. um, and have incredible results I think it's something like only a two percent um, re-referral rate and no um, Thankfully, no adverse um, events and, and, and no um, uh, um, cancers or, or neurological. Yeah. 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 Oh, so that's, that's fantastic. That's well, thank good. you. I'm definitely going to look out for that. And, and yeah. also looking out for the things that you will be publishing um, over, the, over the next little while. Um, Chris, I really want to wish you all the best um, as you as you finish your PhD, and thank you so much for for sharing your expertise with us uh, in this podcast. Um, I've, I'm really excited for the work you're doing, and, and look forward to seeing how it develops. Uh, thank you to the listeners who've tuned in. Uh, we'll be back again with another Speak Up podcast in a, another episode next week. Um, but yes, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.